Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 9, beginning with verse 8 through verse 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my bow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the bow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We live in a season of globalization, do we not? American automobiles aren't. Their parts come from many different places. Uh, Import and export, logistics and supply chains are now critical to the world economy. Every time I get stopped at Palm Avenue by a train, I just have to realize there goes the global economy. Stuff from China or headed towards somewhere else, depending on which way the train is going. That's the global economy at work. We transfer wealth around the globe in an instant. And and yet, there are very few guarantees that this system will always work. There are things, people like hackers. There are things like malware. There are trading systems that can crash at a moment's notice. Run a buy program or a sell program that gets a little bit out of kilter and billions of dollars of equity is wiped out in a day, in minutes. The global economy is a nice thought, but it is wrought with uncertainty. Which I suppose begs the question, is there anything certain on earth? Is there anything certain in our lives. The text that I just read for you from Genesis 9 culminates a story of certainty. You knew from almost the beginning of Genesis, if you 
begin with chapter 1, verse 1, and you read the majestic poetry and the Joe Friday, just the facts memo about creation, you just know when you come to the end of that, something bad's going to happen. Maybe there's just too much Hollywood screenwriter in all of us. But you just know that act two is not going to go well. And it doesn't. The world falls apart. And there's cataclysm. A flood that, according to the biblical text, wipes out all life on earth. We can quibble on the science of that. And we should. But for the writers and the editors of the book of Genesis, what they're telling us is plain and simple. Havoc was wreaked in their neck of the woods. The world as it was came to an end in a deluge. And of that, one could be certain from the end of the creation story, you could see it coming. Is that the way life is to be? Bad things are simply going to happen because, well, that's what Act 2 does. It introduces the bad things. Well, not necessarily. Our text this morning unpacks a restart, unpacks a way in which God continues to say to His people, I'm going to be present. I'm going to be with you. Genesis is a funny book. It's not one guy sitting at, I don't know, the 4th century B.C. equivalent of a typewriter and, and, you know, punching out this great novel of origins. It is instead a long editorial process with many voices speaking into it. Stories that leave your head scratching. What is that doing there? Why? Our, our Western proclivity to start on page 1 and read to page 100 messes us up when we read Genesis. Genesis is like one of those books that you don't necessarily start at the beginning or at the end, you just sort of dive into the middle and read in both directions. And, and you experience the stories. There, is a, there are different voices in the book of Genesis, each weighing in on the essence of faith and life. There's a very old tradition in Genesis, one that, that carried on for centuries about Elohim, the sky god, the, 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 the impersonal god who acts upon us. That, that's there in Genesis. When there are certain passages in the book of Genesis that we read God and the Hebrew word is not Yahweh. That's an Exodus word. The Hebrew word might be Elohim. 
the great God over everything. There's a tradition that presents a more personal God. El Shaddai. God who is, who is with you. And, and the God who continually renames Himself through Genesis as, as that God interacts with the patriarchs. There is a tradition of legal codes in the Torah. And we see glimpses of that in Genesis, although we have to get to the book of Deuteronomy to really experience the legal codes in its fullness. This text, this text is what we would call a priestly text. This text was, designed, was written by the priests of Israel to explain what went on in the world. It's Sunday school curriculum. And sometimes, like Sunday school teachers, it has the feel of being written on Saturday night before <laughs> Sunday school the next day. But here we are with this story that explains what happened after the cataclysm. What happened after the flood? When life fell apart, what came next? In Lent, that's a good question to ask. What's next? What's coming around the bend? What's going to happen? The priestly tradition in the Torah is focused on explaining that God is present even when all seems lost. And the Noah story is the ultimate priestly story. In the face of a self-inflicted, seemingly worldwide cataclysm, God remains present. God remains present with Noah. God remains present with Noah's family. God remains present with the creation stored in the ark. And then God makes a promise. It's actually a three-point promise. In the, passage, in the passage we read, the first promise is never again. It's a covenant of, of a divine promise to never again destroy. God's not in the business of being ticked off with us. God tells Noah, yeah, in essence, he says, yeah, that way didn't work. We're going to have to try another way. We're going to have to live by grace. We're going to have to learn to forgive. We're going to have to learn to listen and follow. It's not enough for me to be an impersonal God up in the sky, and it's not enough for you to go about the world that you want to create. It's about us figuring out how to talk to each other. How I can be your God and you can be my people. Never again is God's promise. There's a second promise. Or a second part of the promise in this covenant. And that's the divine initiative to remember forever. I will remember you. And I will remember the promise that I've made to you. 
And here's how you will know that I am remembering it. I will set my bow in the sky. Now, we've all interpreted this as the rainbow. Genesis doesn't give us that indication. It simply uses the word bow, like bow and arrow. In the ancient Near East, astrologers and stargazers would assign negative meaning and hostility on the part of the gods when they would see the stars forming in a bow-shaped pattern. Genesis flips the script. The bow is no longer a symbol of God's hostility. The bow is now a symbol of God's grace. Rainbow's a good symbol. We can go ahead and say, yeah, rainbow, great. Because that's the that's where we see the bow in our world because there's too much light pollution in our world to see stars and bow patterns at night. <clears throat> and frankly, I don't want to stay up that late anyway. So the rainbow's fine. But here is God's picture of turning the world on its head. This is not a symbol of my hostility. This is a symbol of my grace. This is a symbol of my love for you. This is a symbol of never again. And I will remember. We are in this created world together. And then there's a third component to the promise, and that's that it is a divine engagement not just with Noah, not just with Noah's legacy, but with all of creation. God's first post-cataclysm word is a word to the world. Not just to us. In the same way that God gave human beings the responsibility to care for creation and they failed, hence bringing on a flood, now God says, I will make my solemn promise not just to the surviving humanity, but to all the surviving living things on the earth. Never again. And I will remember. It is a profound covenant that reminds us, especially us postmodern Westerners who are so detached from the world as it is, that God cares about His entire creation, not just us. So what does all this mean for us? What does this covenant have to say for us? And yes, I use the rainbow because it was a really good picture. <laughs> well, this, this story, this, this, this event in Genesis talks about who God is and it talks about who we are. What it says about God, first and foremost, is that God is utterly pro-life. Now, I deliberately use that term to be a little bit provocative this morning. Because we can... Uh, I, I know, it's, a, it's, it's such a new behavior for me. It's, 
We hear pro-life and we hear certain political rhetoric. And we miss the point of the covenant in Genesis 9. To be pro-life is to also be pro-environment. To be pro-life is to care about God's creation. To be pro-life is to care about making sure all living things have a chance to become everything God intended them to be. You fill in the blanks about what that means for public policy. If the Enlightenment taught us anything, it taught us that there's more than one way to get at the goal politically. So I'm not here today to say, here's one approach to the world that is right and every other way is wrong. I'm simply telling you that God stands on the side of life. Seamlessly, completely, inalterably. And when we stand on the side of death, we've engaged in a great adventure in missing the point. And the challenge for us is to figure out how to align our hearts and our lives with a God who says, in the face of a cataclysmic judgment, never again. God's utterly pro-life. God's also completely transparent. Makes a promise for everyone to see. This, This promise, Noah, is to you and to your children, and to their descendants, and to every living thing. Everything on the earth is a part of this covenant. God's God's covenant is not an opaque side agreement between His chosen friends over here who can live in their little spiritual ghetto. God's choice is for the world It's expansive. It's for everyone. Everywhere. All the time. And so God has a word to say, I think, in this covenant with Noah about our tendencies toward tribalism. And it says, this covenant says about God that He loves all of creation. Everything. He loves it all. He didn't just make the world so that we would have a happy playground to be in. He made a world that He loved. That He fashions with His own hands. And says this is good. And He places a humanity in it and says this is very good. Because the humans and the rest of creation are together. But this text also speaks to us and our relationship with God. And the first and foremost thing it says is that we need not live in terror of God. Those wacky Elizabethans who translated the Hebrew into what we call the King James love to use the phrase, the fear of God. 
if that were only what the text really said. It's not the fear of God, it's the awe of God, the awesomeness of God, the majesty of God, the wonder of God, the mystery of God. Genesis 9 teaches us that we need not live in terror of God. God is not a cosmic terrorist ready to work horrors upon us at his whim. The great American sermon, Jonathan Edwards from the colonial period, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he uses the image of God dangling us over a fire as if we were spiders. Really bad image, Reverend Edwards, to use spiders. And just, yeah. Yeah. But, We are not sinners in the hands of an angry, terrible, vengeful, wrathful, ugly, thuggish God. We are sinners in the hands of a God who loves us. Who says, no matter matter how much you ignore my covenant, I will never again destroy the earth. I'm just not going down that road. We need not live in terror of God. We can see the assurances of God. The the restart, the recreation, the remaking of the world is that great promise that we can see in front of us. We can argue all day long whether the glories of nature prove whether there's a God or not. I I think that's a kind of pointless philosophical debate. It's a little bit like how many angels dance on the head of a pin. As many as you need them to be. (laughs) The glories of the natural order don't prove anything, but they sure do point to a divine maker. An uncaused cause. A master designer. We can live with that kind of assurance. We can see it. That if God makes something as beautiful as the Grand Canyon, then how much more beautiful is our soul? And it also means that we live together in a world that matters. And there are two points to this. Number one, we live together. We are stuck with each other on planet Earth. And I don't care if you're Rohingya living in Myanmar, being kicked out and forced to live in a refugee camp in Bangladesh, or if you're a wealthy white American. We are one people stuck with each other and therefore responsible for each other and therefore committed to each other and to the creation that sustains us. We live together in a world that matters. 
And so when one group of people suffer, when Palestinian young people are shot with rubber-coated steel bullets made in America, that matters to us. And we should say something about it. And when when the temperatures on this planet rise, whether through climate changes or industrial pollution, doesn't matter. And the sea ice melts at such a rapid rate that whole islands full of people are in danger of not being able to live in their ancestral home. That matters. Not just to them. To us. The covenant God made with Noah makes it clear that we are stuck with each other and what happens to one happens to all. Because God made that covenant with every living thing. So when a species that God has made a covenant with becomes extinct through our sins of commission or omission, that's on us. And while God promises never again, I imagine we sorely tempt Him. This covenant with Noah sets the stage for all that is to come. The saga of salvation begins with a God utterly committed to life and utterly committed to His people and His creation. And hopes for, aspires for, a people utterly committed to a community led by God. Now, of course there are failures. I mean, the whole point of the Bible is to point out our failures, isn't it? I mean, the very next story after this incredible covenant is Noah getting drunk. Oy vey. The Scriptures do this time and time again. God shows up and there's a great experience with God and the next thing the person does is just make a mess of it. That's real life, isn't it? Well, it's my real life. God shows up and the next thing I do is I trip over myself. That's the point of Scripture. But those failures all along the way, those those painful reminders of our broken, failed humanity continue and continue and continue until we read at the end of the book. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The story doesn't end with our failures. The story ends with God gathering us together. God's goal is for community. God's goal is to bring us together. And to get there, to form community, we have to pass through Lent. We have to pass through this season. Because communities that are built just on the good stuff have no resiliency. Communities that are built totally to be happy all the time fail. The whole point of community is to figure out how to deal with the fact that you can't stand the person sitting next to you and you've got to love them anyway. Because community isn't about everybody being happy all the time. Community is about meeting each other in the failures of life, in the brokenness, in the pain, and loving each other through it. So this morning... some questions but first a quote from a good friend of mine Alan Hirsch an Australian Christian writer who says more important Christian community is not something about which we can arbitrarily make decisions it's not an optional extra the idea that me and Jesus we got a good thing going on I don't really need the rest of you weird people sorry Jesus' whole point is you need weird people in your life. We need each other. We can't do this Christian thing all by ourselves. The whole point of Noah's covenant is to say creation and humanity are bound inextricably together as one. And I will never again and always remember. And so, for us, some questions. How are we engaged together in the task of preserving life everywhere and in every way? How do we take life seriously? We can't do it all. We're all going to have our particular set of lenses and our particular focus that's going to drive us. But how do we bring all of that together and celebrate it? and welcome it, and let it challenge our perspectives together. How are we engaged together in the task of preserving life everywhere and in every way? How are we paying attention together to all the signs that God is with us? From the beauties of the mountains around us and the river that flows by our city, to the gathering of God's people on a Sunday morning, how are we paying attention to the fact that God is with us? That when we show up in this place, part of God being with us is that we've shown up together.
God is with us in the showing up. And how are we banding together to care for all that God has made? How are we taking care? How are we stewarding all the stuff that God has made? That's what Christian community does. It preserves life. It bands together. It stewards the great gifts of God. And it's not optional. One more thing, and it's the words of Tim Keller again, another Reformed preacher. Golly. (laughs) Covenant community is like air, he writes. We don't miss it until we need it. The promise of God that we are together is that promise. And it's like air. We don't miss it until we need it. My friends, in this season of Lent, in this walk through the valley, for some of you it's a literal walk through the valley these days. For others of us it's more metaphorical and it's, oh, that's all very nice, but I'm okay and you're okay. For all of us, we need the air of community. That's God's call all the way back to the flood. From that cataclysm onward, God has been calling us together. And the challenge for you and I in this season of Lent is will we listen? Will we hear it? Will we live it?